Hello and welcome to Erema Soccer, our very special guest with myself and former Preston women's manager Sean Spencer for today's episode to review the final, Mr. Warren Barton, uh, Newcastle United legend, Wimbledon legend, England international with um, tournament experience himself. Uh, thanks for joining us, Warren. Yeah, absolute pleasure, my friend. Nice to speak to you both. So me and Sean have talked on every episode about England's road here. So people tend to know what we think. You know, we were impressed with how successful the switch to 3-5-2 was. We're impressed with the physical presence of the England team. Russo and Hemp front two seem to be firing. What what are your main observations on the team uh, going into this final, Warren? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I thought the we grew into the tournament. Uh, the Haiti game was a bit of a, a nerve-wracking uh, and I think for players going into any tournament, the first game is always one that you just want to get out of the way. And, you know, she made a great save at the end, uh, Mary, just to keep us in the game. But from then, we bounced on. We looked strong. Uh, obviously, it was very comfortable in the group stages. Uh, and then, as as I said, the tournament went on. Playing against a Colombian team that I'd watched uh, throughout the tournament, my time working with uh, Fox, seeing how dangerous they was, uh, particularly their front three, front two, if you like. Sometimes they go to a 4-3-3 or 4-4-2. Um, but the Australian game, really, for me, I was like, wow, we, we got a real chance of winning it because I thought they handled the the occasion. Playing against the host is always difficult. You know, over 76,000 fans cheering, majority of them cheering the uh, the Australian players on. Um, but we was ruthless. Uh, we was pacey, we was dynamic. Um, and then when we took our opportunities, we took them very, very well. So going into the final, when you play against any Spanish team, you know they're going to have quality of possession on the ball. You know they're going to be tactically switched on in uh, transition and when you don't have the ball uh, as well defensively, they keep a good shape. But we couldn't get any momentum into the game. You know, they every time we push forward with our fullbacks, they seem to exploit the space in behind. Uh, every time we try to press and put them under some pressure, they started again and kept the ball uh, very, very well. And sort of run the game out of our legs a little bit. So we couldn't get any momentum. We couldn't get hold of the ball. We couldn't put them under pressure. Uh, and in the end, you know, worthy winners. Uh, but that's not to say it wasn't a great tournament for the manager, the staff, and, and obviously the players. Because going into it, gentlemen, if you remember how many injuries we had and key injuries, you know, you lose your captain, you lose some important players, starters. You know, a lot of clubs, and sorry, a lot of nations lose you know, players going into a tournament, we know that. But these were, you know, three top players that are going to have an impact in the tournament. So over the course of the tournament, I thought it was a, first of all, I thought it was a wonderful tournament hosted by New Zealand and Australia. Uh, and we just come a little bit short, um, like like we've had on the men's side. But there's a lot of positivity about the women's performance and how they played. Obviously, James is going to learn her lesson uh, because you think if she'd had a, a run of a couple of games to go into it. She would have been a starter. And I, I understand why she didn't start. Um, yeah. But, you know, she was flying in this tournament and arguably was going to be the best uh, newcomer in the tournament if she kept the, the sort of standards she kept in the uh, the games going along. And obviously, you know, um, the Nigeria game was a, a big disappointment for her in particular. Yeah, I've got so... I mean, it was giving you vibes of Paul Gascoigne in Italian 90 after the China game with Lauren James, wasn't it? So I got two questions for you, Laura. Uh, Warren, I nearly called you Laura. Laura, yeah, yeah. Warren James. Um, yeah. But uh, I got a question on Lauren James because she, um, England, started the tournament in a four-three-three, and they weren't really firing. 
And then we moved to 3-5-2 and she was a number 10 against China and she looked like the best player in the world that day. And then she's come on today after Nigeria kind of shut her down in a 10 roll, right? And she's mm-hmm. come on wide left. So do you believe that that Nigerian performance that stifled her as a 10 has had such an impact that not only is she suspended, but they've moved her wide left because she was so easily figured out as a 10? And like, or am I off base there? No, I do think her best position is out wide, whether it's on the left or on the right. I think, you know, ideally, with all the personnel that we had, we would be a 4-3-3. But I think it, like any team, Stu, you've coached and both of you have coached at a high level. When you, you can't always be stuck to a formation, particularly in the modern game, how in one half you might play a certain way and then in the second half and then you may change your personnel. I, you know, I think she's talented enough to play as a 10, but also... I think her best position is out wide. When you get her isolated on one-on-one situation, she can come inside, she can go on the outside, she can play little combinations and and get in behind you. So I think she's got a array of talent of being able to do that. Um, I think the well, I can only think I don't know is that the 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 way that she played against Nigeria and the sending off really affected her. She's a young player, you know, and I know she's a million miles from home, but she'd still see the the headlines of. all the reaction that was happening back home because she's such a, an important... We, we've seen what, with, with Paul's career, how he was. But I think she's got good people around it. I just think it was a shame what had to be put a lot of emphasis on her, where at the beginning she was sort of under the radar. But, you know, we'll help her out. I think she'd be in a good frame of mind in the next couple of weeks and then hopefully we can build on that but you're right I think there's a mixture of a lot of things that's going on in that Nigeria game yeah um, and the second question I had for you was on the system and you played full back to you know world level and if anyone watched the game and you have access to it and you press pause at 39 minutes and 40 seconds there is a screenshot of Lucy Bronze pressing the Spanish fullback probably 70 80 yards up the field very much the the vibes of Trent and Andy Robertson at Liverpool um, now England have done this in the tournament and it's been effective. They've rattled teams. They've got in teams' faces. Uh, Bronze and Daly, I believe, have been one of the strengths of England. Um, but is this something that Spain have scouted out, you know, allowed England, baited England almost to press the fullbacks by giving the fullbacks the ball? And then when Bronze and Daly get up the field, get in behind, because for the entire first half, the combination of the left-back Carmoso, uh, the winger Caldente, um, the forward Paruelo going over there. Spain are just, you know, tearing England up on that left-hand side, the English right. Do you believe that was scouted, rehearsed and executed or is that just the flow of the game? Well, that's what I would have done against uh, if I'm playing against a uh, three or a five at the back. You, you want them to, you want the entire I And mean, also with bronze, a lot of the players on the Spanish team would know her from Barcelona. You know, when you, I think there was six or seven in the Spanish team that was a teammate. So they would understand her weaknesses that she wants to go forward. She's 31 years of age. She's played 20 games in a World Cup. She's more than able to, to understand the situation, when to press, when to stay off. And I think it's hard to press when someone's got comfortable on the ball. Uh, so when I had played that full-back position or wing-back position, if the left-back, say, a Graham Lasso had got the ball, there's no point in me running 30 yards to try and close them down. 
because they're comfortable. I think the timing was wrong where she's trying to press in. They played in behind and isolated our, our centre-halves who are going to now be dragged out. That leaves a massive hole for Bright to try and deal with, who's not the most mobile. She wants everything in front of her so she can head and kick it. And now all of a sudden they're running at us. And that's really, I think, where the, the, the goal come from, where we was out of position a little bit. We couldn't quite get back in our position. You know, again, looking at it, maybe for, you know, 20 minutes you go as four four two and just set, get, you know, daily to squeeze up a little. Bronze can cover round and then just slow yourself down in the game. But there's all ifs and buts. It's a World Cup going on. But there's definitely, Stu, you know, that's an area. Whenever I've played against, you know, three at the back fighters, I, I want the full back. So, I mean, Tyson Hurt to come into an area, then I'm just going to roll it around the corner. It doesn't even have to be a combined. And then now you're running a, you know, one-on-one situation in the final third. And, you know, Spain has shown throughout that tournament that they're electric in them wide areas uh, and they're going to hurt you. And it's easier running forward than it is running backward. If you're, you know, if you're a Spanish player going to help and support, it's easier running forward rather than bronze having to turn and daily running 30, 40 yards back again. So, you know, I think we had it again with Gareth with Croatia when they did that. When we had a, you know, the, the fullbacks wide areas in the in the men's World Cup, we got exploited there. We kept coming round and they just kept overloading it on the other side um, when we played Croatia. So it happens at the highest level, and it, it's something that you know we as a nation uh, have to try and work with. Yeah, I mean, and the goal it's it's a moment of madness for me from Bronze, who I really rate highly, but she drives centrally. I mean, it looks like she's going into a 1v4. Um, mm. They turn her over. Um, the holding mid, Abelera, she chips the ball to Caldente, who I thought was fantastic. She's out wide. Um, the left back, who is now getting tracked by Alicia Ruscio, who's, you know, you know, in the mud behind her because Bronze has been beaten high. Um, left back comes in, take a touch, probably got about six inches of a window to finish and beat Earps inside the post. And she does. It, it's a great goal. And it might well be scripted from Spain, right? To turn the ball over and on the turnover, whichever England fullback or wing back had the ball, that's the first place we look. Um, I've said it twice now, but when I watch Liverpool, the games they struggle, this is what they struggle with. They give the ball away. And if Trent or Andy Robertson's been involved in the play, the ball just goes straight where they came from. And you've either got a centre-back slow, or in this case, we've got a centre-forward trying to track a left-back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not going back too much. and But when we played Barcelona in the Champions League with Louis van Gaal, we knew with his fullbacks, he wants Sergio in particular, was a fullback that wanted to push on. So we every time we got it, we rolled it around the corner for Keith Gillespie. And Tino ends up getting a hat-trick. You know, and two of them are headers from Keith. So, you know, even you go back to the mid-90s when fullbacks was just starting to understand the game about pressing and going up the field. You know, Kenny Dalglish said, as soon as you get it, just roll it around the corner for him. And then Keith will do the rest. And so you, you do, you, you go into a game and they knew exactly how we wanted to press because the conditions was cold and we'd, we'd, done, we'd overrun a lot of teams. But any Spanish team that you play against, whether it's a, a U15 team, or you play against uh, in a World Cup final in the women's game, they're going to be comfortable on the ball and they're going to be tactically aware just to, to, to break you down. And sometimes, Stu, we, we look at Pep Guardiola and think we marvel about what he does, but all he does is find where the opposition weakness is and just exploits it. He does a lot of good things, obviously, but when he plays against a team that he knows, here, look at what their weakness is in, add his little dimension to it and just keep banging the drum, just keep exploiting it. So if, he, if it's a team that... Uh, spread out and they want to do it, it go down the middle. If it's a team that's gone in, it go on the outside. So, you know, it's it's an area as a coach 
And that's why I was surprised we didn't change it a little bit um, because we couldn't get hold of the ball. It might be just just for five minutes in a game. Let's just go four four two, narrow it out, or even if you just go five at the back, just say you two fullbacks stay where you are. I don't want you going for. Then it gives them something to think about. And we, but we never did that. We kept going. We're going to run you down. We're going to push you. It's a little bit of the English mentality, you know. We're going to keep going. We're going to beat you. Um, and at the highest level, it, it, it didn't pay off. Um, yeah, I but, always, you know, credit credit to them. I always think game plan wise, if you can take someone's strength and use it against them, it's a very dangerous thing. And I think Spain have done that here. Um, the one halftime change I personally didn't love, and the reason I didn't love it is I thought England were. Uh, second best in the first half. I don't think it's up for debate. But I thought the joy England did have was the the front pair linking, Hemp and Russo. Um, so when they changed, yes, you get Lauren James into the game and you get Chloe Kelly on the right wing. But by going back to a 4-3-3, I thought England m- looked more likely to score with Hemp and Russo playing together than they did in the three with James wide left. What were, what were your thoughts on the half-time changes? I think that was a lot of pressure from how James had had to start the tournament and think, right, we're, we're throwing on. Um, and I think you're judged by, you know, substitutions as a coach, you know, you, you live and die by them. You throw one in the last minute, they get the winning goal. You're all of a sudden Einstein, the greatest person in the world. But I think a little bit was that of, of trying to get back in the game with some, from pace and keeping it a bit wide, but it, it just, the, the game had, had sort of gone away from us then. And I think we needed to get back in the game rather than trying to win the game. And I think with them subs, she's tried to win it rather than just getting back in the game. And, you know, again, we was we was exploited a little bit. And as soon as you start second-guessing yourself, then you know the opposition will, will smell blood and uh, and obviously do that. I can see the, the reason why she did that. I can see the reasons why to bring James on. But you're right. When you look at the combination that was going on and the two centre-halves for Spain, I think, and I, I want Probably their weakest players. They're great with the ball, but I think when you get them on a, a, a one-on-one situation, you can exploit them. We didn't keep that momentum going by trying to do that. You know, we kept trying to outplay them, outrun them, outgrind them, and they we we couldn't get into it. It's as simple as get it into them two and let let them two try and cause a bit of havoc. And then once the game starts coming back into your momentum, then you can bring the subs on. But it, listen, it's a the World Cup, it's half time. You think, well, I've only got 45 minutes. I'll take a fry of the dice. Unfortunately, it backfired a little bit on us. Yeah, I've got you. Um, the first 15 minutes of the half, I think you see two things that are pretty reflective of the game. One is Chloe Kelly's gone there on the right wing, and she's obviously trying to, like you said, win the game, trying to get forward, trying to cross, trying to shoot. And the first thing she does is she's fouling the Spanish left back, uh, Carmono, just to remind her that she she's not going to be able to spend the game on the front foot because she's going to have a lot of defensive work to do. I mean, you played for a team under Kevin Keegan that I thought was, if not the original attacking fullback team, definitely one of the early great teams. You know, what what psychologically does does it do to an opponent when your left back and your right back are proficient attackers? Well, it gives you added numbers going forward. And that's how Kevin used to say to us, you know, and it was very unusual because at that time, if you see the right back going up, the left back would come round. If you see the left back going forward, the right back, he just said he wanted both to go up there so we could try and press, keep the ball and then get it out wide to our players. I'll get it into Peter Beasley's feet and then start playing from there. So he wanted us to go at the same time. I think the, the tackle and the kick is to... Is that English mentality? You could see you're on the sideline, you're seeing someone having a field day. You're like, oh, I'm going to show you, and and that's where we have to be tactically aware sometimes that 
a bit of brute force is not always going to be the way. And I think it was a reminder to say, like, you know, you're going to have a tough game. You've got to beat your opponent by run and pass them, take her back, make her defend, make her think about it. As soon as she kicked her and like got in her face, the fullback, the Spanish fullback, if it was me, I think I've got you now because you've kicked me, you're upset. Now I'm going to keep taking you on rather than knocking it past me again. Knocking it past me again. I remember uh, Harry Kill done it for Leeds. I was playing against him. I thought, right, I'm going to show him. I'm going to, you know, put my foot in him. He got it twice and flicked it around the corner. Now I'm now I'm running backwards, and I'm now having to give a corner away or a throwing away. And then I had to then stay on my feet for the rest of the game because he would have sucked me in, and he might have got another one, and I'll get sent off. So I think that's a little bit of our mentality going to back. What I said is that we're going to get on the front foot. I'm going to show you you're not going to give away. But do it the other way, you know, run her back, make her defend. Because, as I said, me and John was good going forward. Bez was probably better than me defending, but um, that wasn't always my my forte. Although I, I didn't mind a tackle. I wasn't, you know, positioning sometimes. I used to say, if I was playing against gigs, like, how many times is he going to run back and chase me? The problem with Ryan, he used to actually do it and then run the other way another 50 miles an hour. So uh, it, it was difficult doing it with someone against Ryan Giggs. Yeah. Um, now, between minutes 55 and 60, we get some stats on the screen from Fox that are quite revealing. 26 to 10 advantage for Spain in terms of final third entries. 340 to 201 advantage for Spain in terms of completed passes. Um, there's a little run of play where Spain do a little 4-5 player rondo in their own half. A lot of one-touch passes that ends in with foul within England. Uh, foul by Lucy Bronze. And then... Uh, England's next attack is a ball in behind for Chloe Kelly. So it's just a glaring contrast in styles. Now, both styles can work, right? It's not a case of the team who plays technically for possession always wins. It's not a case of the the physically better team wins. And I think it's an important tightrope to walk developmentally because, you know, I, I've watched a lot, a lot of youth tournaments where there's been a focus now on curriculum and teams playing the right way and the same way and developing kids to make the same decisions. And A, I believe that's boring. But B, I don't believe that a player's getting ready for top-level football unless you can play against this Spanish team and this English team. You know, can you figure out and thrive against a team that's going to starve you of the ball and, you know, pick, pick, pick it round corners and run by you? And can you survive against an English team that's going to be more in your face? Um you run, a, you run a youth club. You know, what are your thoughts on development nowadays? Are we getting too one-sided? Is there a right way and a wrong way? When you're bringing players between the ages of 15 to 18, where they go on the bridge of youth to college, what's what's your emphasis on there with the young players? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I think there's a balance of both. Uh, I think, you know, with Barcelona and Spain, the success they had in the 2000s and, you know, um, in the last probably decade, We've been sort of brainwashed that, that that's the right way to play. That's not that's not the only way to play the, the game. There's lots of different styles. A, a lot of it is down to your personnel. What can they do? Is there any point of playing out from the back when your goalkeeper can't pass the ball? You know, that, that type of things. What we try and do in our club is build the technique, the foundations of the game, but also what's the object of the game? The object is to, to score goals. So you can do your five-yard passing, but progressive passing to go forward. So it's not always rondos keeping it start again. You know, we try and do a passing exercise that you pass, your next one has to go forward. So if it comes back, your next pass has to go forward in an area. So as I said, I think we got into a um, a mindset of across the world of there's only one way to play. And like you just said, it's Stu, the right way to play. 
You know, there's no, there's loads of ways to play the, the game. I was at Wimbledon that went from back to front very, very quickly and very, very crudely. It wasn't necessary uh, uh, any type of quality. It was just get it forward and then we're going to we're going to upset the other team. And then I went to a team that was the entertainers that wanted to go forward, but you had to pass it forward with a purpose. Yeah. So from that point of view, you, you have different methods. I always think the game is the game. You want to try and score goals. You want to get to the opponent's goal as quick as you can. Now, if you can do that in five passes or you can do it in one pass, um, but also with the elite level, and you've, as again, you've all coached at the elite level. And I find it strange when people, I hear coaches say this, oh, we play great football, but we got beat 5-0. Well, the whole point is, is trying to win the game. You're trying to you're trying to win a game. That's it's why it's called a competitive sport. You're trying to win. Um, so, as I said, it's it's horses for courses. If you've got players that can play, or if you haven't got players, but the the fundamentals when you're a young player, you. Charles Ferguson said it the the best thing, and it's on a, uh, on um, YouTube. He said the ball has to be your friend. You know that's and then you had Wenger that come in in the late nineties and two thousand. Give me an athlete, and I'm gonna make you a player. So, you know, you've had two aspects of two of the greatest coaches that we've had in modern day football um, have two different ideas. Give me an athlete and the other one wants the ball to be his friend. So it's room for, you know, and that's why in America in particular, it's not a set way of doing it. You know, there's so many ways that you can win a game, um, you know, whether it's a set pieces. And we see now in the modern game, you get people that are coaches from a set piece coach to come in and, and win a game from a set piece. So, to, to answer your question, the kids have to be comfortable on the ball. They have to realise the game is competitive uh, and you have to try and win a game. So if you can yeah. pass it forward, it's, it's it's there. And as I said, I think we've been brainwashed that if you don't pass it six times, you're, you're playing direct soccer. I, I think that's a load of nonsense. Because when I've coached against teams, oh, all you're doing is kicking it long. I said, no, it's a 30-yard pass, actually. It's not, it's not just kicking it long. I played for a team that kicked it long. We're yeah. a team that can pass it in behind. I tell you what I think um, where people are shortening kids nowadays is you've got to think of a kid's career. And if you couldn't succeed at Wimbledon, you don't get to play for Newcastle. You know, you don't separate those two things. And I'm seeing coaches teach kids to play away, but then also dangerously teach that kid that's the only way to play. So that kid will go to a D1 Power 5 college team and now can't succeed because they're not playing the right way. Or a kid who's successful in college who gets a contract with a Nisa or a USL championship team and he can't succeed because he's conditioned to only play one of the five to ten different ways we can play the sport so if you're not developing a kid to succeed in all these different challenging environments and you're not developing them with the intent that they succeed in college or they have a lengthy pro career well what are you developing them for yeah Stuart, it's the same in in England with league two conference you know, a lot of the Manchester Liverpool guys going into Morecambe, going into Rochdale, like you, you can't play like Man City at Rochdale. You can't yeah. play like Man City at Morecambe. You know, you're in League Two against six foot three, six foot four centre backs that are just trying to kick you up in the air. You have to be able to, you know, you have to be pliable and be able to to deal and find solutions in that. So. Yeah, I agree with you 100% the right way. All right. So we're going to say goodbye to Warren now. I know you've got things to do and greatly appreciate your time, Warren. And no, absolute pleasure, gentlemen. Myself or Sean will round this up. So, Sean, for this one, you will take that shirt off and start again with another uh, oh, episode, yeah? Is that right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Good, 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 good. Okay. When you've gone. <laughs> you've got, you got a couple of smog... To everybody out there, you've got a couple of smoggies on there, so good luck with that. Good luck with them two. Absolute Thank pleasure. You. See you See later. You. See you later. See you Take care. Bye-bye. So that was fun. That was yeah. fun. You know, people, people like Warren, what I appreciate about that is, and, you know, for those remaining now who haven't clicked off now, the... Uh, the elite level mind has left the podcast, Sean. I'll recap the the game a little bit. But um, Warren was a, a world level fullback. You know, he's marked Louis Figo. He's played in the Champions League. He's played at the top of the game. And the England fullbacks or slash wingbacks, whatever you want to call it, they um they had a pretty important impact on this game, right? Arguably for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's interesting as well. Just going back. Um, you know, in terms of the the right way to play, the reason why Spain play the way they Spain the the way they played, the reason why Guardiola coaches the way he coaches is because you know that's what they've always done culturally, and Spanish. it wins, and it wins, yeah, and it and it and it wins, but you know you've just got to respect it, and then you've got to find a way of countering it. Um, I, I personally don't understand why why we didn't take some lessons from Japan. You know, Japan have been the most successful team against Spain in this, this tournament. I didn't see that game, so give anyone listening an outline of that game because I know the stats and they're pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, well, what was interesting as well, I was doing some stuff for um, the US Soccer Federation, uh, an application for, for that, and I was using Japan for how they were defending. And basically what they were doing is it pretty much looked, you know, like a 4-4-2. They were keeping the lines pretty tight. They were keeping pretty compact. And they were absorbing the pressure. But then when they got the ball, they were able to play out of the pressure, keep calm and exploit the spaces. Because I think this is this is one thing, um, you know, certainly the commentators during the game if Spain are pressing with three, four, five, six players with the player on the ball, that means the space is elsewhere. And, you know, we, we were talking about Guardiola. That's exactly what he tries to, to counterattack. He knows teams are going to try and close his players down, but he also knows there's going to be spaces elsewhere. Um, and that's that's exactly what, what Japan did. They didn't leave any spaces at the back. They didn't leave any spaces in the middle. But Spain did, and then they exploited quickly. So I, I was a little bit like stunned that we didn't learn a little bit from that Japan game. So I think what's interesting, and J Japan is a very much a, I think it's fair to say. I know it's a sweeping statement, right? But I think it's fair to say, England and USA, bit more individual ego. Japan, China, bit more of a culture of buying into the team system. Yeah. Now youth college pro level. In America, which is my personal experience, if you mm -hmm. want to sit in, there's all kinds of negative connotations that come with parking the bus. You know, I won't name him, but I remember having a chat with one of my uh, Dartmouth players when we were watching Man City Burnley, and he's making fun of the Burnley players. And he kind of looked at it different when I explained to him that those Burnley players are earning thirty to $50,000 a week, and he's begging for a USL trial. And, you know, you can mock them. And you can pretend that you're on some higher level because you want to attack and you think they don't. Or you can realize that 
within the world that they're playing, this is how they compete and you have to learn and be able to do that because to park the bus is not an easy thing. 19 teams are going away to Man City this season. 16 or 17 will tactically try and do what will be described as parking the bus and probably all 16 or 17 are going to fail and they're probably yeah. all going to get beat. It takes fitness, discipline, ability, like Nigeria did for England, fantastic ability. And by the way, Nigeria got 20 shots. But is a, is a Japanese team, is it easier as a coach to sell that system to your players, to absorb pressure, to hit them ruthlessly on the counter-attack and score four goals in five shots, where with an English team, you're going to naturally get more buy-in on the surface level. Let's get up in their face. Let's pray front foot. Even though it didn't work. It didn't work spectacularly. You know, does that play into the decision when the coach is making the game plan? Yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, we both watched the Newcastle game. Yeah. uh, Yesterday. You know, and we just spoke about how much Burnley players are on. Now, you know, I don't know the figure off the top of my head, but Newcastle's an expensive team that's been assembled there. Very. And they're having to sit back, I wouldn't necessarily say parking the bus, but they're, they're back there in a in a four five one, a glorified four five one against against Man City. I think it is naive to go into a game thinking you can go toe to toe with with a team that wants you to do that, you know. And I think that's the case with Spain. You have to acknowledge that. And we said this at the end of yesterday when we were talking about the Australia game. You know, you have to look at Spain and go, okay, they are better at doing this than we are, but we are better at doing this. Yeah. But now, you, for me, you, for me you, in, a tournament, in a tournament, Sean, with games closer together and less recovery time, I'd be inclined to sit in and in certain areas of the field, probably 30 to 40 yards away from their own goal, just let Spain do as many passes as they want and drop that penetration line. Because for me, as soon as the England wing back and Lucy, Lucy Bronze is 80 yards from goal. And as soon as it's turned around the corner and they're coming at you and they have 20, 30 yards of room to build up pace. And, you know, Carter and Bright, they're not bad players, but they look like it sometimes here, right? Because instead of defending crosses and defending 1v1s in tight areas, Carter's out on the sideline. She's got people bombing at her. Bright's in 1v1s with quicker players. I just don't think it played to England's strengths. No, and the other thing that you've got, you know, and again, go back to, to to Bielsa on this one. You know, his rule of if they're if they're playing free free up top, you play a back four because your two centre backs can look after the number nine. And if they've got two up, you play with a back three, you know, because then you're a three v two in your favour. Now I, I was looking at this, and you know, you've got the you got their front three on arguably our back three. So it's man for man there. And then they're overloading out wide and with their attacking midfielders. And not only that, they have good quality possession of the ball to make them passes. Yeah. So it's all very, very like dangerous and sort of playing from playing with fire from the start of the game. I mean, it was beautiful, right? Caldante on the left wing, I thought was phenomenal. Um, Paraleo, I know I'm butchering that name and I apologise. <laughs> Doing better than me. He's over there in that left channel. Her morsel would float over there in pockets. Uh, Carmono, 
the left back would just fly over. She gets the goal. I think she was the best player on the field. Um, you just have to chart this down to hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, for all the games, a three five two did work, and it did work a lot. So I'm not going to go say Serena Wiegman made an error because. I think uh, there's an argument, you know, you don't automatically get to win the World Cup final. That's not how life works. There's an argument the 3-5-2 is the re- England, reason England even got there as far as they did. But it's uh, they've been systemically beaten this game. The Spain players have played a little bit better. And the Spain system and game plan has worked. I mean, there's no mental fragility England, you know, like... You got Lucy Bronze playing mind games at the penalty in the second half, and Spain have missed the penalty. You've got Bronze aware enough that when Greenwood goes down, we need an extra uniform when she gets the Terry Butcher headband so she doesn't have to come off the field. I think this is a case that fans often don't want to admit. England have given everything they had. There's no weakness, there's no lack of character. They have performed and they've been beat by a team that was a little bit better. And for whatever reason, most people can't cope with that, right? It has to be a lack of effort. Someone has to have choked. It has to have been a coaching error. Has to have been Referee. a, you know, like I, I think England gave what they could give, and I think Spain is justifiably the best team in the world. Yeah, I, I think, like I said, the only thing for me really is the first half, and I would be interested to know if they looked at Japan if they took any of the lessons from the Japanese game. Because if I'm on the, the English staff and I'm one of the opposition scouts, like my dossier is going in with the lessons that I saw in the Japan game. And Spain lost 4-0 to Japan, for those who didn't know. Yeah. I, I, and and then the other, the other thing is, you know, and again, uh, you seem to use his name every five minutes, but here we go again. Um you know, there the could be an element of where, like, Bielsa is like, you know, the, the sports and entertainment. So, yeah, you can sit back and you can defend and you could go 4-5-1 and try and get them on the counter-attack. Or using his philosophy is, you know, you've got a, you've got a duty to the, the fans and, and to soccer to make it as entertaining as possible. So, you know, there might be an element where she's gone, you know, it's the final. If we're going to get beat, we're going to get beat doing it. Our way. So, full disclosure, I do not buy that philosophy. I do not buy into that theory. I think professional coaches at this level have responsibility to their players, to the fan bases who like it or not respond to results, to the countries they represent and to themselves and their careers. I think they should be trying to win. And if you oh, can. No, I, no, I'm sorry. Just to, to clarify, like with Bielsa, he is trying to win. Yeah, but he's trying to win uh, a certain way. So, for instance, like there's been a few times he's been criticised when they're they're winning like three, three two in the last like couple of minutes, but he's still attacking the same way. Yeah, I so would I would argue, Sean, and you're not going to like this. I would argue that is a weakness, not a strength. Uh, I think Bielsa is a storied character in the history of football. I do. I have a lot of respect for him. I've watched his teams and tried to take lessons from it, some of which I understand and some which I clearly don't. But in terms of the level he's won on, I don't believe he can remember than the pantheon of great managers. There's too many people won too much at a higher level than he has for him to be rose above them in the history of the game. 
you want in my comment now, aren't you? Yeah, I know you're not having it. You're allowed to disagree. No, no, I again, I you know, elements like would I do that personally? No. But I do I just, do just, like... for the, just for the record, if anyone questions it, I'm aware that I rank below Bielsa in terms of what we've won. So not elevating myself above him, but does Bielsa be remembered like Bob Paisley, Bill Shankly, Alex Ferguson, Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho, Arrigo, Saki? Um, no, not in my opinion. I think it's the the balance, isn't it, of um, you know being a pioneer and pragmatic. Mm. You know, it's finding that sweet spot. So, you know, I, I love the likes of of Mourinho. These people who find a way to to win. Um, but on the flip side, I also can't help but admire that type of attitude. That sort of, you know, just running out onto the the battlefields first. Well, I think so, I think there's a place for everything. You know, yeah. I, I think probably one of the worst things about the modern day fan is they take what they believe in, and I'm more of a Mourinho guy in terms of what I would try to emulate and how I would go about giving an opportunity to that level. But you don't have to run around deleting all the things you disagree with. You know what I'm saying? Like Bielsa doesn't have to not exist. Uh, yeah. Football is a better game, and the Premier League is a better league if you put Mourinho and Pep and Bielsa and Sean Dyche. Uh, all in it at the same time. That to me is the beauty of it. Yeah, hundred percent clarity. And I think, and I think what you get then is you know you get younger coaches who take elements from these people and try and improve upon and try to get rid of the weaknesses and and that's how the game evolves. Yeah. So I mean, I've got a friend, uh, Joel Bancroft. He coaches D two women's in New Hampshire, and he has done a magnificent job at St. Anselm, right? A great job. And the team is immeasurably better on and off the field from the day he took over to now. And an Argentinian who was doing his work in Leeds, in Bielsa, had an influence on that. I mean, that is a beautiful thing. It really is. No, that's it. That's it. So, yeah, I think, you know, looking looking at this, going back to the game, ultimately, you look at it and... They got beat England, so it has to have been the wrong game plan because they got beat. However, you know, could they have scored? Was the chances? Yeah. And then the game's completely different then. Yeah. So he's written different, right? Yeah, but that's 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 the thing. And I, and the other thing what I've spoke about quite a few times is you know, tournament soccer is the variables are insane, you know, and we've seen it with uh, Lauren James. Like the little things that can happen in a tournament can throw off the dynamic of it and completely change, you know, everything about the game. Yeah. So that's it for the final. Um, we are planning to have a uh, a review of the World Cup episode um, with uh, a coach who made the knockout rounds. So if we pull that off, that'll be very enjoyable. But I can tell you, this is full disclosure, this is the first time I've watched every England game at a women's tournament, and I've really enjoyed it. You know, Demone for Heidi, you know, the worries of the Heidi and Denmark game that we talked about on this part of the counter-attack. I mean, that, that came through today, <laughs> a little bit the counter-attack, and it came back to bite us, but I would argue it's more a level of play thing. Um, you know, uh, Denmark, harder, uh, China, Lauren James, memorable performance. Nigeria, magnificent performance, I thought. Um, 
did a number on England that might even have played a part in how England went about their decisions today. Maybe not. Um, the Australia game, fantastic game. Colombia game, great game. Caicedo and Spain today, wonderful tournament. Women's soccer very much on the rise. Interest in women's soccer very much on the rise. I think this might be well be remembered as a as a golden era of uh, women's soccer, at least outside the USA. I know women's soccer's had its moments time and again in the USA, but as an England fan, I've never seen it quite reach this cultural footprint. Um, in Australia and Spain, I think they're probably at a peak in terms of cultural footprint. So good times for the women's game. Any final thoughts, Sean? Yeah, I, I would I totally agree with you. I think the quality throughout the tournament has been has been fantastic. You know, we've spoke about um, the the world is speaking about the quality getting diluted in in World Cups with more teams getting allowed in the men's game and you know the women's game. And I don't I don't think taking this tournament. As an example, I think the quality across the board has been has been really good. I think the different styles of play has been good. Coaching overall, um, and you know they're never perfect, but I think the standard of refing this tournament com- compared to previous Women's World Cup is light years ahead from from where it was. I think the biggest the biggest weakness for me in this tournament was. The length it took for the VAR decisions, I think that was frustrated and kind of needless in 2023. Yeah, agreed. VAR, ongoing issues all over the men's and women's game. Yeah. Like today, though, what was it, seven minutes? Yeah, I know. I did like the little touch of um, uh, the referee announcing to the crowd over the microphone, but overall, I think VAR is another L. one of the weirder things I thought is they let Georgia Stanway place a penalty on the spot, take the steps back for the run-up, and then did the review and cancel the penalty out. Uh, yeah. Just weird, man. Just weird. Yeah. And and again, very like VAR is not new now. Mm. And we're seeing how it's been used in the Premier League, uh, Qatar, and, and and the German League. So I don't I don't understand why. This World Cup VAR seems to have gone back. I prophesize that the future of VAR is going to be the offside law. It's going to be a cyclical and never-ending evolution, off-season changes with ultimately no one ever happy. I hate it, but that's that's where we're going with VAR. Yeah, I like I said, I I agree. I just think it just needs to be quicker. Can't yeah. can't wait seven minutes for a decision to be made, but. You know, other than that, the teams that are involved, the fans, I think it's been quality. I think the stadiums, the location, everything about it. Yeah, so we'd love to end on a high, but England have lost the World Cup final and VAR is rubbish. (laughs) Thanks for listening. (laughs) See you next time.